You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Galatians. We'll begin reading with chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read... um, Through the first 10 verses, we're not going to get that far this morning, but let's go ahead and read anyway through verses 10. Galatians 2, verse 1, page 972, if you're using the church's Bible. Galatians 2, verse 1, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment." so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing as we seek to study and understand these words that you've given us from the pen of the Apostle Paul uh, through this this grave trial that the churches in Galatians found themselves in shortly after Paul's planting of these churches. So, Father, we pray that you continue to teach us, to guide us and bless us, Father, uh, that we might be instructed by your word and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our uh, um, point of this morning's sermon, I want to state it right away because I fear that as we go along, at some point, someone might say, Rick, what is the point of this message? I think as we get caught up in some of the details that we're going, I want to just start right from, uh, right from the beginning and saying what we're working towards here is shared with us in verse 5, and that is the preservation of the gospel. Notice there, Paul speaks... Uh, he says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be what? Preserved, preserved for you. And in some respects, this morning is really only half. It's really only part one of this message. That's why I want to state the point right from the beginning because as we start looking at some of these details, we might start to wonder, okay, well, I learned a lot of things here, but what was the point Uh, The point is what Paul is laboring for here uh, really is nothing short of actually preserving the gospel message. 
Now, if we think with that, if we think with that thought in mind, I think it's really going to help us to do a review. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, now I think we're seeing why Paul is so abrupt. I've made this uh, comment how many times. Notice how Paul starts. He's just, Paul, boom. He's, he's defending his apostolic ministry. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, I've been made an apostle not because I went down to Jerusalem and the other apostles laid hands on me, not because I was um, I graduated from some school and a, a local church ordained me. No, I've been an, I'm made an apostle uh, by Christ Jesus himself. In fact, more specifically, by the resurrected Jesus. Paul has been made a gospel. So Paul is defending his apostolic ministry right from the start, obviously because his apostolic ministry has come has is been brought uh, under suspicion. It's being attacked. It's being assaulted. If you look down to verse 6, what's Paul say there? I'm so quickly speaking to the Galatian churches that he planted. He's absolutely astonished that they're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This should warn us all that the church can be just seemingly going fine and everything can be, can be going wonderfully. And then within a couple of weeks, within a few weeks, Everything can, can, it can indeed change very radically. Uh, when I was in seminary, we, we, we would see that once in a while. You know, in chapel, we would take prayer requests and people would be talking just how quickly a, a church uh, can have some significant problems. Look what Paul here, Paul planted the churches in Galatia. And now after he has left, these false teachers have come in and they're confusing the Galatians. And now the Galatians are, are toying with or flirting with a different gospel, a false gospel. Paul is absolutely astonished by this. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, we've looked, we've teased some of the meaning out of these verses over the last few weeks, and I hope you don't mind me reviewing this, uh, but what's at stake? The preservation of the gospel is what's at stake. And Paul is uh, developing a very careful argument that we do well. If we're going to feel the whole force of it, we need to take it each step of the time here. And first, Paul's astonished. Not only are they turning to a different gospel, notice they're deserting him who called in the grace of Christ. Now, by the time we get done with this letter, we're going to see how turning to a different gospel or even turning to a distorted gospel is one and the same as turning our backs on the Father who calls us in Christ. We're going to begin seeing that clear and clear as we go along. Um, you remember maybe about a month ago, uh, the first message in this series was on what we call exclusivity. And it's, it's a tough thing. It's a really tough thing. It's easier for us than it is for our culture, believe me. You know, I had a um, conversation with a person Friday uh, at the park, and it's a person who, who is embracing, the, beginning to embrace the gospel. I'm, I'm really happy to say they're embracing the Bible as the Word of God. They're studying the Bible. They're, they come to uh, the Bible study on Mondays. And they, we were talking about exclusivity. We were talking about the fact there's only one gospel, that even a distortion of that Singular gospel is actually another gospel. We're really basically talking out, talking from verse 6 here of Galatians 1. And the person said, you know, 
I get that. I get that the Bible teaches that. I get that. I'm just so struggling with it. It is something. We have to be patient with people. It is something that even as people begin to put their faith and their trust in the Lord and put their faith and trust in Christ, there's still the, what about all these people that are so so faithfully uh, following all these other things? What do, you, what do you say about all these people? They're so sincere in their faith. What is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying there's only one gospel, isn't it? As much as our affections can be torn and as much as our affections can be, uh, can be displaced over this, we have to go where Scripture leads us, don't we? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one what? Comes to the Father apart from Him. Uh, that's, an ex- you know, that's an exclusive claim. And of course, we know that because only in Christ Jesus is there an atonement for sin. And that's something that's important for us to always remember. And this is, this is why Paul's using such strong language in verses 8 and 9. He says, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Some of the strongest language in all Scripture uh, that Paul's using. Why? Because souls are in the balance. The stakes couldn't be higher here, could they? This isn't, you know, this isn't um, some, you know, tertiary matter, secondary tertiary matter here. This is of first importance. This is the difference of life and death, the matter that Paul's talking about. Now, when we get in verse uh, 11, when we begin chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says there, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that's preached by me is not man's gospel. So let's stop right now and see how Paul's building his argument. First of all, He's defending his apostolic authority, right? Then he's displaying astonishment to say there's only one gospel. He's astonished that the Galatians so quickly are turning from that one gospel. You know, they put their faith in Jesus. Everything's going good. People are being baptized. Churches are being uh, planted. Paul moves on, and suddenly he hears the whole thing's falling apart. So he's defending his apostolic ministry. He's showing that there's only one gospel. And now his argument goes to this. He says, listen, this singular gospel, this one gospel is not man's gospel. You see that in verse 11? I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, he's going to make this argument in a couple of ways. In verse 12, he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We looked at this last week, and we saw where does Paul receive this revelation? He receives it on the Damascus Road, doesn't he? That's how most Bible, Bible commentaries, that's how they understand it, not all, but that's how they understand it. Uh, some hold out, well, there could have been another revelation that Paul received. Well, fair enough, but I think in all likelihood, it's this when Jesus reveals himself to Paul on the Damascus Road. And what is Paul on the Damascus road to do? We saw this. He is on his way to Damascus to wreak havoc in the church there, isn't it? He's said to have been one who breathed murderous threats against the church. He was a person who believed that Jesus was a farce. He was a person who believed that the best service he could render God would be to find all believers in Christ, incarcerate them, or worse. He was a man who held the coats while they were stoning Stephen. And that's his disposition as he is on his way on the Damascus road. What does Paul say in verse 13? Galatians 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Now let's stop right there because we have a lot going on. We started to look at all this last week. But when you make the claim that there's only one gospel, and you make the claim that this gospel is not man's gospel, someone is liable to say, well, how can you prove that? How can you show that? We have the life of the Apostle Paul right here. What is Paul doing? He's pointing to his own testimony. So wait a second. You guys knew where I was coming from. It was no secret. I was like persecutor number one. The churches were afraid as we read this text and read Acts. If, if we were living in that day, the Apostle Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, for that matter, would have been someone we were been afraid of. One of our greatest fears that we'd be having a service like this and he would come in. Why? Because we could all be carted off to jail. Our stuff could be confiscated or worse. You know, harm could come to us. Now, all of a sudden, what are we hearing? Paul's preaching the gospel. How do you explain that? Well, it's easy to explain. Paul, see, Paul's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, and he's blinded by the glory of Christ. I don't know what Paul did with the resurrection, all these resurrection accounts before that, but what I do know is after that, Paul realized Jesus is alive. Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and I'm sure that put his mind in motion all of those texts that he had memorized from the Old Testament, all of that stuff is now in motion where he's putting the gospel together. Jesus is alive. That means Jesus is who he said he was. That means he's not a farce. That means he is the Messiah. That means he is the Savior. Probably after a lot of repentance, Paul's heart was filled with joy. Wait a second. He's the one we've been looking for. And he could do no other than to begin preaching the gospel. Now, what Paul's arguing now, and what I want us to start to put our minds around, our heads around, is Paul is making the argument that this gospel is not man's gospel and that he did not receive it from any man. After his conversion, he didn't run down to Jerusalem and matriculate into the Bible College of the Apostles, if you will. He didn't go down to Jerusalem and go into the seminary of the apostles and sit at the feet of, the, of the, those who were apostles before him. If you look at verse 16, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What he's saying is he's received the gospel from Jesus himself. There was no reason for him to go down and study under the apostles. Jesus had revealed the gospel to him. That's his point. It's not man's gospel. And it's another powerful apologetic. What's an apologetic? A defense. It's another powerful defense of the, of the, uh, of the gospel itself. How do you explain the apostle Paul switching gears so radically? I mean, he's going one direction, and all of a sudden he's going in another direction, and he's preaching a gospel that is accurate. And people are being blessed. People are being saved. People are coming to faith. People are growing in their faith. And he has never sat under the teaching of the apostles. Now, Paul would have understood the Christian message to some degree because he hated it. So he had to have understood some of it. 
But the fact that he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road is the game changer, isn't it? And the argument that he wants everybody to see is, I didn't go down to the, I didn't go down to Jerusalem. I didn't immediately consult with anyone right after my conversion. And in verse 18, he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Now, what I want to do here is I want to take the, the biographical sketch that Paul is giving us here in these verses, and I want to look at the book of Acts to see how this lines up with the sacred history that Luke is giving us. And this can be uh, a little bit confusing. I wasn't going to do it, but uh, I, I haven't been able to get any further. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm preparing... Um, Messages. I'll ask you while I'm, I'm babbling here to turn to uh, Acts chapter. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. I've been trying to think of a way to do this, and that's it, it gets kind of complicated. And I've been trying to think of a way to do this that is the easiest to get your mind around as possible. Um, one of the reasons I wasn't going to go into all of this, but one of the reasons that I I think we should go into this first of all is I haven't been able to get any further. And when I'm preparing messages, this is often really how it works. You know, how do I, some of you have written sermons, you know what I'm talking about. You, you study and you study and study, and then something kind of jumps out at you and you get a burden. And you say, okay, this is what I'm going to preach. This is to my better or worse. This is to my measure of faith, what I believe I have. And I think it's important for us. Many of you have study Bibles. And if you look at your study Bibles, especially if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Then after 14 years, Paul says he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Um, you look at these, um, these references of going to uh, Jerusalem, if you will, and if you compare these re references to the book of Acts, uh, there is some debate in regards to how they line up. And I know many of us have... Um, uh, the uh, Reformation study Bibles, I think I see at least two of them open. Uh, some of us have um, NIV study Bibles. Some of us have ESV study Bibles. When you look at the notes there, you're going to see there's a debate uh, as to how these things line up. And one of the reasons I think we should go into this is so that we can defend our faith. Um, if, you, if you look at, um, you've got Acts 15, Holding that open with one hand, Galatians chapter 2 with the other, well, Galatians chapter 1 with the other hand. Let's look real quickly at the time frames that Paul gives us. Paul is telling us that right after his conversion, verse 17, he did not go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before him. He went away to Arabia, then he returned to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years, he went to Jerusalem. There he visited with Cephas, who remained with him 15 days. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said he used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. Okay, well, this can be really confusing. Let's just start simply. What is Paul saying? Here so far he's saying there's been two trips made to Jerusalem since his conversion. Right? Everybody following that? Two trips to Jerusalem since his conversion. Okay, let's, let's think about the second trip first, the one in chapter 2, verse 1. 
that's said to have occurred after 14 years. Okay? When, what, the, the, one of the debates centers around which Jerusalem visit is this? Now, there's one school of thought, and, and, and mind you, you're, you're not falling out of orthodoxy whether you, <laughs> whether you take one view or you take the other one. Okay, it's not going to affect your interpretation of the letter that much. But I think it's important for us to get this. Because a lot of times people will say, why do you trust your Bible when there's so many inconsistencies in it? When there's so many contradictions in it? And I, I just want to show us that there are things in the Scriptures where scholars who are of a good stripe, scholars who are actually very biblical, very godly, they come to different positions on these things. But that does not mean that there's a contradiction in the Scripture. Um, and I think as we are able to show people that I know, I don't think this, I know this, as you're able to sit down and show people these kinds of things, it's a game changer for a lot of people. And that's the kind of work we need to be doing. So I think it's helpful for us to roll up our sleeves. Notice Paul says, after 14 years. Okay, here's one of the problems. After 14 years, that sounds simple enough, right? It's not so simple. Why is it not so simple? Because the ancients didn't keep time the way we keep time. They didn't run around with these things. They didn't have cell phones with, my cell phone tells me it's 1106 right now. Okay, 1106. Um, the ancients didn't have digital wristwatches. They didn't even have wristwatches. And there were a couple of different ways of communicating time frames. I'll give you an example. Let's imagine an incident that takes place in the fall of 2009. We're going to say October of 2009. And the effects of this incident carry all the way until the spring, we'll say March of 2020. Now, if we were writing a newspaper article on this incident and its effects, how many years would we call that? We'd say that's 10 years and a couple of months, right? So we'd probably say just a little over 10 years. The ancients could do that, and that would be fine. They would understand that. But there was another way of saying the same thing that wouldn't have been questioned. They could have called that 12 years. Is anybody aware of this? I mean, you really get into this when you're studying kings. And a lot of times these debates get, well, look at, look at all the, you know, this, this king was said to be king at such and such date, and then the other king was said to be... You get into a real headache until you begin to understand this. So how would the ancients have called my example 12 years? Because they would have considered the last quarter of 2009 a year. And they would consider the first quarter of 2020 a year. So it would have been the 10 years in between, plus the last quarter of 2009, plus the first quarter of 2020, 12 years. So when Paul says after 14 years, he could be talking as little as 12 years, or he could be talking 14 years. There's a two-year discrepancy. Another, another thing we just do not know. I mean, some writers are really dogmatic, and I don't know how you can be dogmatic because grammatically it is possible to start this 14 years at the time of Paul's conversion and it's equally grammatically possible to start it after the three years in verse 18. 
So we now have a time frame that spans from 12 years on the inside to 17 years on the outside. That's not going to affect our overall interpretation, but what do we say to the person? When someone says, especially when our kids are in school and university, it's one of the reasons I want to go over this, and the professor says, you can't believe your Bible. Look at the time frames they give you. You know, this could be a, a difference of five years here. This could be anywhere from 12 years to 17 years. Which is it? What is it? You're, you know, you're looking at the Bible to get these specific answers, and they can't even get the time right. If that professor is an English professor, he is being so brutally dishonest. Because that same English professor would never look at any ancient literature for that kind of a precise time frame. Because the ancients, all of them, writing in that time, didn't keep time the way we did. They did not have the benefit of digital wristwatches. Now, if that professor is a math professor, maybe he or she doesn't know that. But if they're English professors, come on. If you've been studying the, any ancient literature, you already know this. And you would, never, you would never apply that kind of time frame to Homer's Liliad or to Aristotle, or to Plato, or to any of these, or even to the ancient historians that, whose stuff we, we still have in existence now, to Josephus, or Eusebius, or any of, these other, uh, any of these other guys whose last name ends with us, right? Famous guys whose last name ends with us, right? Uh, on, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, but I want to point that out. So with the 14 years, we can't be dogmatic. But then notice, okay, which... Which Jerusalem visit do we have in view here? Um, there's one school of thought that says there's the Jerusalem Council. You still have your finger in Acts 15. If you look at, uh, keep your place in Galatians and look at Acts 15, verse 1. The passage we read earlier in our service. There we're told that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Now, reading those first three verses really quickly, we could say, you know, this sounds like the Galatian problem, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Sounds exactly like the Galatians problem. And let's make application of these right now. Because here we have a problem. Um, there's people that are teaching that faith in Jesus is not enough. To be saved, you need faith in Jesus plus circumcision, right? Now, Paul and Barnabas are debating with these guys, and it's becoming such a big problem that they say, listen, we need to all get together, and we need to hash this out. So a meeting is called in Jerusalem. We call it the, some of you will have a subheading uh, over uh, chapter 15, verse 1. It says the Jerusalem Council. It could say the Jerusalem Senate as well. Uh, you've been hearing us talk about Senate coming up. We have this Senate meeting. At the Senate meeting, we're going to have delegates from all the churches, as many as can, um, from all the churches gathered in a meeting uh, to discuss issues in the church. Where do we get this from? Acts 15 is one of the places where we get this from. I don't make a lot out of denomination, the denomination I'm affiliated with. As you well know, you can listen to dozens and dozens of sermons and never hear the word Presbyterian at all. 
uh, but I am Presbyterian by choice. I had to leave the mainline Presbyterian churches because they just quit believing their Bibles so many years ago. Had to leave there, but the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, is one of those churches that believe their Bibles. We believe our Bibles. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God. But, the, but the, my reasoning for being Presbyterian is I believe that the church should be governed under Christ, not by one person, but by a plurality of elders. You've heard me say that before. And it's, it's when you're watching this work properly, it is the most beautiful thing. Donald and I just had a conversation about it before the service in the hallway, didn't we, Donald? It's the most beautiful thing to see because God will use the collective wisdom of us all. Every time I think along these lines, I immediately think of Brian Tritt. You know, I've been doing ministry with Brian Tritt since 2005. 2005. I worked with him in the North Hills for three years, and then he's been with us since day one. He was with us when we were still praying whether we should plant a church or not. Brian was involved in those prayers. And all of these years, I can't tell you how many times his wisdom has been... He's kept me from marching off, not walking, not falling off a cliff. He has kept me from marching off one. I don't know how many times. No one person has the wisdom to do this. So in, in the ARP church, we don't have this hierarchy. We don't have a mini pope running around. We don't have that going on. One of the places where we see how this is done, notice, okay, the issue of circumcision is coming up. There's people saying you have to add circumcision to your faith in Christ to be saved. Paul and Barnabas argue with them. It gets nowhere. So they call for a council. And if you look at verse 3, notice that they're being sent on their way by the church. The church is sending them. See the cooperation. Everybody's working together. They're going to say, okay, we're going to settle this thing. We're going to have a meeting. We're going to send delegates from each church. We're going to have this meeting. Paul and Barnabas are on their way. When they came to Jerusalem, verse 4, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now notice the interesting thing about this detail is we're told that these are believers. They must be confused believers. Because we're told these aren't false teachers in this context. You see that? In Galatians, it's false teachers. Here, it's believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. They're saying it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles in order to, and, and order, uh, to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this is the problem. As soon as you start adding something to faith in Christ, what happens? Where does it stop? As soon as you put that plus sign in front of faith in Christ for salvation, where does it stop? That's why in the Jewish mind, if you're in the ancient Jewish mind, if you will, to add circumcision to faith really is going to be, by implication, bringing in the entire ceremonial law. So you see what's at stake here. Now in verse 6, that's Acts 15, verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Then after there had been much debate, notice there's debate. It's really wonderful to watch people debate today who don't get mad at each other. It is possible to do. If, if you have two mature parties, it can be done. It does require two mature parties. A rarity today, actually. Finding one is rare enough. You have to have at least two. Um, they had debate. 
Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Notice it's by faith. What's Peter advocating for? It's by faith you're saved. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's by faith you've been saved. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? Notice the word yoke. You know, it's, it's implying slavery, isn't it? And Paul's going to bring up slavery, and that's going to be a subject that we're, going to be, that we're going to be getting into here before long in our study of Galatians. But again, verse 10, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's by grace, through faith. Now, all the assembly fell silent. Verse 12, they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they'd finished speaking, James steps forward and replies, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Now what's James doing? He's, he's calling on the word, isn't he? He's saying the prophets have been saying this all along. Looking back at the prophets who prophesied centuries earlier, he says in verse 16, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David. This is a promise of God. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all of the what? The Gentiles who are called by name, my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from all. You see the inclusion of the Gentiles here? What's James saying? He's saying this shouldn't surprise any of us. If you look back at the word, God has made it clear that the gospel is supposed to go out from the four walls of Jerusalem out to everybody. Let's give thanks to the Lord today that that is the truth because there isn't a single one of us that would be in Christ this morning if that wasn't true. Because I don't believe there are anybody here this morning that's of Jewish descent. Am I correct in that? We also need to give glory to God that the gospel has been preserved for us. Let's not forget. You see, in all these details, it's easy to forget what we're studying, but it's going to take us a while to get there. So it's getting the gospel correct. If you look at verse 19, this is Acts 15, verse 19. James says, therefore, it's my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so, uh, and, and look at verse 22. It's important that we see. James isn't deciding this as a pope kind of figure. Notice in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas. They're in agreement. An agreement, a, 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 a synod, if you will, or a council has been called. Churches have sent delegates to this. They have brought the matter before everyone. They have wrestled through this prayerfully. They've debated it. They've wrestled through it with the light of the Word of God and the light of prayer. They've reached a decision. Now they're going to draft a letter, and they're going to dispatch this letter to everywhere where this problem is being uh, found. Does that make sense? 
Okay, now there are some will say, if you go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, they'll say, when Paul says there, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, that it's the Acts 15 council that's in view there. And your study Bibles will probably, unless the um, person or the group that wrote the notes for that study Bible will probably, um, they'll, they'll say that's one position. Um, some, I've, I can't remember who, some take that as the position and are pretty dogmatic that that is the correct position. And I don't think we should take that. Um, I think we need some, some humility here. That is one possibility. Um, I don't agree. I, I'm going to offer an opinion right now, and this is just my opinion. Remember, I've always told you when I'm offering an opinion, I'll let, I'll, this is Rick's opinion. You can take it and leave it. Um, but I don't think it's the Acts 15 council that's in view here. And someone said, well, why not? Because in Galatians, Paul never makes a reference to this council. And I would just, ha- now, someone said, Rick, that's an argument from silence. I'm like, yeah. And it's supposed that, okay, in many cases, arguments from silence are tended, have a tendency to be weak arguments, but not always. As, Doug, as Douglas Moo says regarding this, that yes, it's an argument from silence, but it's a deafening silence. Wouldn't you think at some point Paul would make a reference and say, listen, we've already hashed this out. We've already decided this. I just can't, I just can't for the, I, I just can't buy that this is Acts 15. Now, there's another reason for that. Paul mentions this as the second Jerusalem visit after his conversion. But by the time we get to Acts 15, we, we see that Paul has visited Jerusalem three times, not twice. If you keep your place in Galatians 2, uh, two keep your place there, and this time go to Acts chapter 11. Actually, why don't we go to chapter 9 first? And I'll trace the steps here with you. If you go to chapter 9 and you look at uh, the second half of verse 19, in verses 1 through 19, Paul is converted on the Damascus Road, right? Or at least we can argue he's converted at least by the time that Ananias gets to him, right? And we're told then that something like scales fall from his eyes and uh, whenever his conversion. I, I have to think, though, on that Damascus Road when he sees Jesus, he, he's a different character after that. Uh, perhaps a confused character for a little while, but that is really what is required. With our heart's eye, we have to see the risen Lord. We really do. Um, that's conversion. Lord, it, it comes like this, Lord, you really are real. You really are there. You really have risen from the dead. Um, Paul is aware of this. And in the second part of verse 19, we're told that for some days, Paul is with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God, and all heard him, were amazed, and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? You see, they're, they're like, wait a second. You mean Saul of Tarsus is preaching the gospel? Um, and notice the suspicion. They say, Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? They, they think it's a trap. They think it's a trap. But Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. 
But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, if you hold your place in Acts chapter 9, you go back to Galatians, and you look at verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, okay, after um, God is pleased to reveal Jesus to Paul, in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul said, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Okay, we find him in Damascus in Acts chapter 19, or chapter 9. What's he doing? He's preaching. What happens there? They decide they're going to kill him. Okay, so he's lowered down out of the wall secretly by night in a basket by the disciples. Keep your place again in Galatians. Go back to Acts chapter 9. Now, if you look at verse 26, where does Paul go after he's lowered through the wall in a basket? Verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, he spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeing what was happening. They're seeking to kill him again. They're seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus so that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So where does Saul go? Saul goes to Jerusalem. Now, if you go back to Galatians 1 and you look at verse 18, most commentaries agree that in verse 18, this first Jerusalem visit is lined up with what we have just read in Acts 9.26. After Paul, Paul is forced to flee Damascus, Make application right now. Sometimes it's all right to flee. Sometimes there's a debate among missionaries when things get really dicey. Uh, no, we're to stay even if it costs our lives. Well, we see an example here that Paul didn't take that route. Uh, he escaped with his life, so it's not so simple. Let's keep that in mind. But Paul escapes Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem. We look at chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 18. Paul says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Okay. Three years, I go to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. And um, Paul says, I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, let's not lose sight of what Paul's arguing for. I know it's complicated, but what's Paul arguing for? He says that the gospel that was preached by me is not what? It's not man's gospel. I did not receive it from a man. After my conversion, I didn't cons immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go down to Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. And he's making his argument. No, I, I went into Arabia, then I went to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. Okay, there I met with some apostles, but Paul had already been preaching the gospel prior to that. In fact, we can be pretty rest assured he's preaching an accurate gospel because why? The opposition are trying to kill him, both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, right? Now, he's in Jerusalem. He's meeting with some of the... Uh, he's meeting with... Um, um, with Peter, that's Cephas. He said, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. 
Now, in Acts, we saw that Paul, when he leaves Jerusalem the first time, he goes to Cilicia. Okay, Tarsus is his hometown. Tarsus is in the province of Cilicia. Now, see, this is all lining up good. Um, Verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were on hearing it said that he used to persecute us. It's now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. See how Paul's using his testimony to make the case that this is not man's gospel? Um, in verse 24, they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, it's tough to know whether it's 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after this uh, first Jerusalem trip. We don't know. We simply do not know. But after this period of time, Paul goes to Jerusalem a second time. Now, keep your place in Galatians. We're almost done. And take a look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. There are... We're told that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas uh, to Antioch. Now, what's going on here? After Stephen is persecuted, and incidentally, Paul's involved in that persecution. After Stephen is, is executed, Paul's involved in that. Paul then gets converted. He's preaching the gospel. But that persecution causes the church to scatter. And in scattering, God uses this scattering. He's very much using this to take the gospel outside the four walls of Jerusalem. And they go out to Antioch, and they preach the gospel, and many people come to faith in Antioch. In fact, Antioch now quickly becomes a hub of Christianity, if you will. And this gets back to the, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem. So they send Barnabas out to check it out. Now, verse 23, this is Acts 11, verse 23. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now notice what happens in verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. A lot of times I think maybe if we read Acts 11, we only remember one detail about Acts 11, we say, oh, there's where the word Christian comes from. It's in Antioch. Not in Jerusalem, interestingly enough. It's in Antioch. Now, if you look at verse 27, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, Claudius being one of the emperors, we know from, from um, secular history that there was a famine, I think if memory serves me correctly, between 45 and 46 AD. That's the famine that's in reference here. Verse 29, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. You see, it's the work of the church to come alongside of the poor, isn't it? Uh, we see this, not just to preach the gospel, but to come alongside of the poor. And what did they do? So they did so, and the church sent, uh, they send this relief to the elders by the hands of who? Barnabas and Saul. And here we find a second 
visit to Jerusalem recorded in the sacred history by the Apostle Paul after his conversion to Christ. Now, if we go back to uh, Galatians, and we're, we're, we're over the curve here, so it's going to get a little easier. We'll put some of this together. This is only the first part of this message. We'll put some of this together here. Um, the position that I take is that in chapter 2, verse 1, and again, this is my opinion. There are some really outstanding Bible um, commentaries on both side of the, sides of this one. But I think the better argument is that when Paul says after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, this, this is the famine relief visit. And that's why if you look, some of you, you look in your study Bible notes, you'll see that there's a debate. They'll talk about a debate. They'll talk about the famine relief visit in Acts 11 or the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 as lining up with this. Now, I... I, I you know, there are more arguments. I don't want to give you any more than this, but I want to give you a second one. A second reason why I think it's the famine relief visit is because why, why wouldn't Paul mention that? Someone say, there you go, Rick, arguing from silence again. But Douglas Moe says, yes, it's an argument from silence, but it's a deafening silence. Because Paul is sequencing. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, look at verse 18. The very first word, at least in the ESV in verse 18, is the word then. Paul's making the argument that after his conversion, he did not consult with anyone immediately. He's not saying he never consulted with anyone. He said he didn't not consult with anyone immediately. Nor did he go down to the apostles, who were, those who were apostles before him. He starts preaching. Undoubtedly, he's meditating on the Word, prayerfully meditating on the Word, studying the Word. He's preaching. And he's, his argument is the gospel that he received is not man's gospel. He goes, well, then I did go to Jerusalem. Verse 18, chapter 1, Galatians 1, 18. I did go down to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Yeah, I kind of had to hightail it out of Damascus, right? They were seeking to kill me. I was lured down out of the basket. I come down to Jerusalem. I preached for a little bit. I met with Cephas. I met with James. Uh, but then things got pretty dicey in Jerusalem, and I had to hightail it out of there. And then I went back up to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. Fair enough. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. And the point that I'm taking here is that this Jerusalem visit is that famine relief visit. I think Paul opens himself up if he doesn't cover that. I mean, if this is the Acts 15 visit, why, first of all, why doesn't he ever mention Acts 15 in Galatians? Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he offer that? Secondly, why would he skip a Jerusalem visit if his argument is he did not consult with anyone? Now, these aren't foolproof, but I, I, I give this to you. What do we do with this? Why? Is this just a history lesson? It is a history lesson for sure. But what is the practical application of this? Why, why do we want to put our brains through all this? Because it is complex, isn't it? Because people all day long, who have never, some have read the Bible, but most have never read the Bible, have come, become convinced that it's full of contradictions. Secondly, you can have debate with one another and not be unorthodox. Thirdly, we can have debate with each other and not be name-calling and hate each other. You know, when I was in seminary, I used to debate, 
used to debate with some of our brothers and sisters from the African-American community. They were Baptists. They loved the seminary. I studied that because everybody loved Jesus. And we, I've shared this with you. I mean, when we had debates about baptism, I mean, they, they were so funny. I mean, I, I love these, both, both men and, and women. I, I love them. They, I can remember one saying, yeah, man, yeah, man. Yeah, Rick, I get it. I get it. I see where you're coming from. I just can't get it. I just can't get it. I just can't get it. Well, part of the reason is they grow up Baptist, and they've been Baptist all their lives. Some of you know exactly what that's about. But I share this with you because we were both passionate, wanting the truth, trying to find the truth from the Scriptures. But we didn't resort to calling each other names. We didn't resort, as some leading scholars have done, to say that one's sinning and or the other one is sinning. I am really disappointed. I won't mention names, but I'm really disappointed in at least one major scholar who actually resorts to that. We've got to knock that off. When we had these wonderful debates, and all we were trying to do is help each other discover the truth. They were an impasse when it was all said. I, don't, I haven't seen, uh, I don't think I've seen any of those folks since I graduated. Now, I don't know if they've later changed their position or not. Maybe sometimes they wonder if I've ever changed mine. Now, mine's only become more convinced. Maybe they've only become more convinced than theirs. But the point right now is we can have debate on secondary matters. This is a secondary matter. Whether Paul visit, whether this visitation Paul's talking about is Acts 15 or it's Acts 11 is a secondary matter. When we die and we're before the Lord, he's not going to ask us, Megan, are you Acts 15 or are you Acts 11? <laughs> and if you get it wrong, er, that's adding something to the gospel, isn't it? If we're going to add that to the gospel, where do we start? I know where we go. I know what's next. Date of the Exodus, that's next. You've got to get the date of the Exodus. And we could go down through this. Yeah, Alex thinks that's really funny. We could go down through this. The date of the Exodus, by the way, is something that's debated. And the, and the, the, the information is so, it's, it's I, I don't know. I think we're going to have to wait to get to heaven to find out how old Moses really is. Um, but uh, you see my point. We need to be able to have these debates. Let's look at a couple of verses that follow here, and we'll call it a quits. After 14 years, we see this could be as little as 12 years or 17 years by our own reckoning. Doesn't matter. For right now, it doesn't matter. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. What's significant about Titus, we'll see in a moment. I went up because of a revelation. Possibly... Agabus saying there's going to be a famine. That could be the revelation. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. We can easily trip over verse 2. What's Paul doing? Is he bringing his paper down to be graded by the apostles? It looks that way on the surface, doesn't it? That's not what's going on. The context will not support that interpretation. Paul is arguing that his gospel come directly from Jesus. He doesn't need anyone to grade his people. In fact, he'll say that the apostles there added nothing to him. Then what is he wanting? What is he worried about? What is he concerned about? He's concerned about a divided church. He's concerned about a false gospel propagating in Jerusalem. 
Now think about a divided church. Paul understands that God's plan of salvation is to gather one people of God. People of all tribes, nations, and tongues. That means Jews and Gentiles in one church. But if this gets traction, there's going to be a Jerusalem church, there's going to be a Jewish church, if you will, and there's going to be a Gentile church. You see the problem with this? And if furthermore, Paul is going to be hindered in his gospel uh, uh, proclamation by a powerful, very powerful voice out of Jerusalem, isn't he? So we can see here in verse 3, he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he is Greek. That's the significance of bringing Titus into this. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, I see these guys are false brothers in this case. In Acts 15, some of them were believers who were fallen into this trap. See how dangerous this is? who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. There's the word slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be what? That's the title this morning. See, see why I don't think you would have ever got the title of this message if I wouldn't have told you. It's only part one, and we're doing the hard work of rolling our sleeves up. Now, if you leave here, I want to encourage you. If you leave here and you're just going like this, I don't know what that was. I do think I'm thankful it's over. Um, we're going to do it again next week. Uh, we're going to review again next week. Next week it won't be so hard. Um, and that's how, that's how this thing happens, isn't it? And the week after that, we'll do it again, Lord willing. And each time we do this, it's not going to be so hard until we actually see Paul's powerful argument here. Let's leave on this note. Praise be to God that the gospel was preserved for us. That through faith in Jesus Christ, who lived for us and died for us and rose for us, is all that is needed to bring somebody into union with him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, for giving everybody, Father, the patience that they needed this morning with me and trying to stumble through this complicated argument. And, Father, I thank you and praise you, Father, for everyone here. And I pray, Father, that, Lord, you will help us to internalize this powerful argument that Paul is putting forward. And we know, Lord, Paul's not on his own as he makes this argument. We work and labor so hard because we know that this is the argument that you have given him, that you inspired his pen as he wrote. And Father, we want everything that you have for us here in this letter to the Galatians. We desire to get the gospel right. And Father, we, we lastly praise you, Father, that, Lord, it is you who superintended the gospel, and it is you, O oh Lord, who has preserved the gospel for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.